the first Sunday of November. It's not really, I guess you can applaud that, I don't know. Daylight savings time, be honest, there is no shame who got here an hour early. We actually had a couple in the first service that raised their hands, so. Am I, uh, am I buzzing? What is that? All right. Awesome. You know, as, uh, as Baptists, we shouldn't even do anything for daylight savings time. You know why? That hour was saved last year, and once saved, always saved, right? So we... <laughs> Time's flying, right? I've got another birthday next month, and I will let you write that down. <laughs> Just kidding. It's the 25th, if anybody wants to write that. I honestly feel like I... Just had one of those. Time is flying. I think time actually moves faster the more kids you have. I think there's a phenomenon there, kind of crazy. I actually uh, feel like I went into the kitchen uh, a few days ago to make a bottle for my daughter and brought it to her, and she didn't want it because she's 12. But um, time is moving right along. Anyway, if uh, if you were here with us last week, I'm sure that you two were blessed by the word that the Lord delivered through uh, Dr. Kevin. Uh, Dr. Joe actually was intending originally to be back here by today. Um, his mother is doing well. He wanted me to thank you for your prayers. He said that they feel the prayers of the family here to please keep doing that. She's doing well. Uh, but since they were there, uh, they decided to take just another couple of days. So we can allow him to do that, right? So he will, uh, he will be back next week, God willing, and, uh, and continue to pray for them. But since our plans were modified a bit, you will notice that the sermon notes in your worship guide will not correspond to the message this morning. So you can disregard those. Um, I thought about preaching a message based on his notes that are in there, but felt like that would be a bad idea for many reasons. So I did not. So those notes are not going to correspond. And for that same reason, there won't be any notes up here on the screen either. So gasp. All you have to do is read your Bible. That's what we're going to do this morning. For those of you that don't know me, um, I am Nathan Wallace. I'm the pastor of community development here at Lawndale. I'm glad to be in the house of the Lord this morning. How about you? Amen. Um, Up here preaching on a fairly regular basis on Thursday nights and uh, haven't been up here on a Sunday in quite a while. And there are two things that strike me every time I come up here. First of all, this pulpit is huge and uh, I could probably preach from sitting on top of it. I won't. That'd be weird. Um, But also it's very bright. So if I'm doing this at you, it's because I'm trying to see who you are, because the light is in my eyes. You're less likely to fall asleep when it's bright, so that is a blessing. Today, we are going to be looking at several verses in the book of Romans. We're going to start in Romans chapter 10, so if you have your Bible with you, please open to that. Um, Also, if you're using your phone as your Bible, um, go ahead and scroll there. Now, as we turn to chapter 10... We realize immediately, of course, that we are skipping past a lot of Paul's letter to the Romans, right? Nine verse, nine chapters to be exact. It's extremely important to read and to study the word in context instead of jumping directly to Romans 10 usually. So I will say what I say oftentimes on Thursday nights, uh, that you please not allow what you get in here from me or from Dr. Joe, or from Kevin, or from anyone else, please do not allow the scripture that you get from up here to be the only scripture that you get. Amen? The word was given to you to read, and to meditate, and to study, and to to grow under, and so do that, and just allow Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, Thursday nights, to be a time that we dig a little bit deeper into certain portions of scripture. It is more to be desired than fine gold. 
That's what the psalmist tells us. It's sweeter than honey from the comb. So cover yourself in it. But for this morning, in the interest of time, as a quick and short overview, Paul has to this point in the book of Romans, as we come into chapter 10, he has been laying out the truth of the gospel. He has been focusing on the fact that all people are sinners and are in need of a savior. He focuses on the fact that the law cannot be that savior, the fact that Jesus Christ is that savior, that those who place their trust in him walk in newness of life, that all those who place their trust in Christ have hope for an eternity in heaven with him. That all of this is God's work, this is God's doing, that we cannot add anything of value to accomplish anything, and, and particularly salvation from sin, and that justification, forgiveness, and cleansing of sin is by faith in Christ alone. And so he has said a whole lot up to this point in those first nine chapters. So with all of that context, we open this morning to chapter 10. And as this is the word that God breathed out for us, deep and rich, alive and active, necessary and useful, or for equipping the man and the woman of God for every good work, out of reverent respect, I ask that you stand with me as we read the key passage this morning. Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 13 says this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you've given us the opportunity to come into a place and to gather and to open your word and that we can read it and we can be changed by it. God, I am unworthy as a vessel except for what Jesus Christ's blood did for me. And so, God, I ask that you would make me a tool in your hand, a vessel in your hand to pour out your word for your people this morning. I pray that hearts would be open, that minds would be open, that, that, that uh, we would not be able to leave here the same way that we came in the door, that we would become more like Jesus Christ and closer to you through the preaching of your word. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, right from the start of this passage, chapter 10, verse 1, we see a heartache in Paul, don't we? We see a heartache for the Jewish people, for his people who are yet far from God. He says, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. The word that's used in the Greek here is desis, which carries the idea of a supplication or a petition before God. He is begging God for his kinsmen. It's not just an empty or a flippant prayer. 
that Paul is praying here, but it is a, a fervent and a passionate desire of Paul's heart to see others, particularly the Jewish people, his people, come to know Christ. He longed to see them saved. And Paul was not just making a hopeless plea here that he did not expect to answer. How often we throw out prayers without faith that God can actually do what we're asking him to do, amen? We forget who it is that we're praying to, like we're somehow throwing darts over our shoulder, just hoping that one of them is going to hit the target with no expectation, no faith. May God lead us to prayer that is aimed and fully relies on his ability to act. The apostle Paul prayed because he believed that God could save them all. He prayed with confidence, and in the faithfulness of his Lord, he was confident. One of the very reasons that Paul wrote this letter to the Romans was so that we, you and I, here and now, would learn and grow through it. Well, we're only one verse in at this point, but let me ask you right up front, and we'll let this question kind of hang over the remainder of the service today. Do you know unbelieving people? Maybe even those in your own family or your own close circle of friends. Those who have not been saved from an eternity, separated from God in hell. Don't brush off my question. Do you? Does your heart ache for these people? Do you desire and and fervently, consistently pray that God would save them? Do we even believe that he can? The Apostle Paul understood perhaps better than anyone God's sovereignty, and, and he had a clearer picture than perhaps anyone of God's grace and God's mercy and his love. He believed that the Lord could save all of the Jews, and so we see this kind of anguish in him. And we saw the same kind of anguish in Jesus as he was hanging on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't, they don't know what they're doing. And in Stephen, in his dying breath, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. In other words, Father, save them anyway. Brothers, Paul says, my heart's desire and prayer to God is that they would be saved. And then he goes on into verses two and three. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God, seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. The fact is, no group of people in history perhaps has been more concerned with religious truth than the Jews. And that's what Paul is talking about here, a zeal for God, a burning to please God, but a zeal and a burning that's overrun by misinterpretation and religious tradition based upon that misinterpretation. Listen to this quote by a man named Sanford Mills. Sanford Mills is a Hebrew Christian. Israel wants to be the captain of her own soul, the master of her own ship, but Israel lost both her rudder and her compass, and now with her vessel of state careening about in a maelstrom of sin, what is to save her from being drawn into the vortex of hell? Yet this is the condition of Israel today, even as it was in Paul's day. 
The condition of Israel today, Mills says, captain of her own soul, master of her own ship, and it's in such a state that Paul sees his kinsmen. But I submit to you, Lawndale Baptist Church, from this rudderlessness, from this lack of compass, we are not so far removed. And let me quickly interject, I'm not just referring to the non-believing world because it's very easy for us to look across the street and look over into the other neighborhood and look at the other people and say, yes, that's true about them. I'm talking about what we also see within the church. A people zealous in religiosity, searching for truth, searching for God, searching for more of him, a zeal, but like Paul says, not according to knowledge within the church and outside the walls of the church, people seeking to earn salvation or at least attempting to come alongside God and help him out in that work. Oh, I know that we would all quickly fall in line with the concept of, uh, of, of uh, faith alone and grace alone and Christ alone and for the glory of God alone, but if we're to be honest, if we're to really be honest with ourselves, to really think Is there nothing about why we do what we do that falls in the category of us just trying to be good enough? In our coming to church and our reading our Bibles and our participating in service projects and signing up and volunteering for things, how about this? This is a great plumb line. What do you find yourself doing when you've had a bad day as far as obedience and faithfulness to God is concerned? Do you run to Him in joyful repentance? Because we can, knowing that he loves you perfectly with a love that does not depend on anything that you've done? Or do you avoid him and shrink back from him just knowing that he's mad at you, that he's disgusted by the fact that you have messed up again? Because you see, what we do when we know that we failed and when we know that we're dirty, that shows whether or not we truly understand God's love and God's grace and the work that Jesus Christ did. And whether we truly understand it, when, we, when Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, we have all become one who is unclean. Even our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Even what we do for the church, even our ministry, even our righteous deeds like a polluted garment, we all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Why do we think that something we can do is going to make him love us more? And again, Paul's words in another of his letters, the one to the Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved. Through faith, this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works. So that no one may boast. The Bible says over and over again, friends, that there is nothing you can do to earn God's favor. His favor, his love, his mercy is fully and forever based on Jesus. When your Father God looks at you, He sees Jesus. When you have failed to be holy, He sees Jesus. Even when you've lived as righteous as you know how, He sees Jesus. 
when you think there is absolutely no way that he could still look upon you with love and forgiveness because that thing that you have repented of over and over and over again has raised back up and you have given in and you have sinned again against him. He sees Jesus. Do we seek to live holy and righteous lives and obey his commandments? Absolutely. But not because it somehow makes it easier for him to stand us when we do. We do it because we know that he loves us with an unfading and an unbreakable and perfect love and we want to pull in closer to him because of it. But so often we act like Israel here in Paul's letter, ignorant of the righteousness of God. What does this mean? Well, it's worth saying that no person can even begin to fully understand God's holiness and God's righteousness, right? Paul says later in Romans, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. And Paul isn't the only one. David said several times in the Psalms, things like such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain it. And great is the Lord and highly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. So when he's talking about ignorance, he's not somehow insinuating that just these people can't understand. He's not insinuating that he somehow does fully understand or know the righteousness of God. Yet that very inability to comprehend God's perfection should be reason enough for us to fall on our faces in worship. People are able at least to acknowledge that God's holiness and righteousness are absolutely flawless. The Bible says that we are without excuse because his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood through what he has made. Our God is perfect. Our God is set apart. Our God is holy. He is divine. If we truly understood comprehended that and acknowledged that, would we still try to show off to God through our good works? Would we still believe that we have anything to offer him? It's like if Warren Buffett were to walk in here today. And he comes back to Guest Central to tell me how wonderful of a job I did, because he would do that, probably. (laughs) There's entirely too much laughing at that. (laughs) But if he was in Guest Central with me, and I walked up to him, and I pulled out $91 bills, and I said, hey, Warren, look at this fat stack of cash I've got. He's worth $90 What would he say? How much more crazy is it when I try and stack up enough good works to please God? You know, that's humorous. It's a funny illustration, but we do it. And that's dangerous. Because when we think that we have something to offer him, it lessens what we know we need from him. 
See, the Jews did it, and Paul explains this kind of downward death spiral that it sends them into. Watch. It says that ignorance of the righteousness of God leads to the next thing there. What does it say? Seeking to establish their own. Their own what? Their own righteousness. Because, you see, if we are unaware of who God is, we begin to become worthy ourselves in our own eyes. He says, why should I let you in? And our answers become, well, because I'm kind of good. Because I prayed a prayer at that conference once. Because I'm better than that guy and those people. Paul said that his kinsmen were ignorant of the righteousness of God. And because of that, they were working hard to establish their own righteousness. And then what? They did not submit to God's righteousness. Well, of course not. We don't need God's righteousness if we think our own is sufficient. This is the gospel, friends. It's the gospel. And I think when we're standing in a church and we're standing before a bunch of people who are already believers, as soon as you mention the word gospel, we tune out. Because, oh, I'm already saved. I've already heard the gospel. I've already responded to it. So you don't need to talk to me about the gospel. I've said this more than once up here on Thursday nights, but the gospel is not just for unbelievers. To quote another pastor, the gospel isn't the diving board from which we jump into the pool of deeper things. The gospel is both the diving board and the pool. When we lose sight of the fact that God so loved the world, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. When we forget that God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ. We begin in our humanity to lose sight of the righteousness of God. And we begin to seek and depend on our own righteousness and we eventually stop submitting to him. Now, I've used the phrase, like the Jews, when talking about us, brothers and sisters in Christ, but that comparison has holes in it. It only goes so far, and the reason is because, you see, even when we throw ourselves into that downward death spiral that I was just talking about, even then, God sees Jesus. For the believer, we have Jesus. And you see, when Paul talks about God's righteousness... We have the personification of God's righteousness in Jesus Christ. Verse 4 begins, for Christ. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. How do we keep our eyes trained on the righteousness of God? Well, we keep them trained on Jesus. And how do we do that? Well, we spend time in his word. And we we read through the Old Testament and we watch how we as a people were desperately in need of a Savior. 
because our contrived righteousness was never good enough and we couldn't quite get there. And then we read through the Gospels to watch the coming of that Savior and to be discipled by his life and his teachings here on earth. And then we read through the epistles and all the way to the end of Revelation to be grown and sharpened by truth for our day-to-day and to be encouraged in our hope and that which is to come all for what reason? All for the direct purpose of falling full on into his arms of grace. And to fully trust that he has completed, listen to me, I don't care if you remember anything else that comes from this pulpit today, if you remember this one line. He has completed everything necessary for your salvation and your righteousness. Everything. See, that's at the center of Paul's anguish here. He's not just saying, man, these people are just dumb. Look how dumb these people are. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying it is ripping my heart out. That my Jewish brothers and sisters are working themselves literally to death to accomplish what God has already done for them. He's saying, oh, that they could see, that they would understand that this path they're running is is like a hamster wheel. It's getting them nowhere and they're heading to hell. That must be the cry of our hearts for unbelieving people. It's not about getting them involved in a church. That's a byproduct, yes. It's not even about a denomination. I love the Southern Baptists, but who cares? It's about being broken and torn up because there are people that are on their way to hell and we're doing nothing about it. And he's praying, dear God, draw them to yourself. Open their eyes to see that the law cannot save them, but Christ. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, verse 4. What does Paul mean here when he says that Jesus is the end of the law? Well, he's speaking in part that it's fulfillment. Because you see, the law wasn't and isn't a bad thing. The law, and what we're speaking of there when we use that term, is, is the sacrificial system under which, uh, under the old covenant by which the follower of, of God uh, endeavored to remain holy through their actions and through their rituals and making sure that they were doing certain things. But see, all of that not only pointed to the holiness of God and still points to the holiness of God, a perfect reflection of who it is that God is and what God is conforming us to be like, but it pointed us to the need for a Savior because we couldn't and we can't keep it perfectly. No human could until Jesus, who's 100% human, as he's 100% God, and he came to fulfill the law perfectly and therefore became the perfect and final spotless lamb to be sacrificed for our sins, a fulfillment of the law. But when Paul says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, he's conveying also the idea of termination. What he's saying 
is that there is no more need for the sinner to continue his or her futile quest for righteousness through his or her own imperfect attempts to fulfill the law. That is over. As a means of salvation, the law has been put to death. But if you look at it, it doesn't end with Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, period. He ends the sentence with to everyone who believes. So for those of you who are believers in Christ, you have been set free from the law. When you place your trust in Christ, you also received the gift of Christ's own righteousness. Listen to what Spurgeon said about this. He said, Christ is the ultimatum of the law. And when we go to the law, accepted and protected by him, we present to the law all that it could possibly demand of us. Christ has fulfilled the law on behalf of all who believe in him so that its curse is abolished for all of us who approach it through Christ. Paul wrote another letter to the believers in Galatia, Galatians 5.1. He wrote this, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For freedom, Christ has what? Set us free. Christ has set us free for what? Freedom. I know it seems too easy, but it's the truth. Christians, you serve a new master, and this one gave his life for you. This one has covered you in his own righteousness and wants your obedience here on earth because as the very best of fathers, he knows what's best for you. Stop striving to be good enough. And rest in the fact that he is. And then live a life that's indicative of one who has been ransomed and set free. And if there's anyone in this room that does not have a relationship with God, well, the conclusion to all that I just said has to be that the law does still apply to you. In order to satisfactorily stand up before God's holiness in the end times, you must obey the law. That is every last word of it, and it must be done perfectly. And you can't. And you don't have to live under that standard. Trust in Jesus today. Trust in Jesus who has accomplished it already and because of whose sacrifice and having stood in your place before God's judgment offers not only reconciliation with God but adoption as his child. Do you know it wasn't because Jesus was crucified on the cross that we're saved? There were a lot of other people that were crucified. In fact, the very day that Jesus was crucified, there were other people who were crucified. That wasn't the work that he did that brought salvation. The work that he did is he stood before the tsunami of God's wrath that was meant for you. He stood up and he took the wrath of God that belonged to you because you were his enemies. Because we spit in his face, he stood up and he said, no, I'll take it.
All right, so where are we? Paul saw that his people were zealous for God and for the things of God, but he recognized that their zeal was misplaced. It was misdirected. He watched them attempting to create their own righteousness, right? Their own stairway to heaven, if you will, by living according uh, to the old covenant law. And we know that there isn't anything wrong with the law. We just said that. But as a means to salvation, it is dead. Christ both fulfilled it and terminated it. And there is righteousness to be found. The only righteousness that is to be found as one that satisfies the requirement for holy justice before a perfectly holy God, only to be found in Jesus Christ. So what Paul's doing here in verses one through four, he's making a statement. And the statement basically was righteousness for salvation can only be found in Christ, not the law. And that is the case for all who believe. And what he's now going to do is he's going to unpack what that actually means a little bit. He's going to open up the terms of salvation. And what he offers here in verse five is kind of a hypothetical. He says, Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. So he's talking about a method of obtaining righteousness, of obtaining salvation, and it's the one that Moses wrote about in Leviticus 18. And actually in that passage, Moses is quoting God himself when he says, you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. The rules and the statutes of God would be all of the things that he laid out and communicated as a definition of holiness, the ways that a person might become worthy of relationship with a perfect and sovereign and holy creator God. He doesn't hide those things. God does not find pleasure in hiding the rules from us. They are clearly laid out in the old covenant, not just in the 10 commandments, but all of the rules, all of the statutes in order to be counted righteous and holy. You will not only know what all of them are, you will walk in them. You will keep them. You will live by them every single one every single time no mistakes that's all you got to do hypothetically you have that option let me know if you want to sign up for that of course we know that what paul said back in chapter six of romans is true too though that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of god and so this methodology for salvation is a non-starter it doesn't work So thank God for verse 6. Moses wrote about this also. But the righteousness based on faith says this. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven or will descend into the abyss. What in the world is Paul talking about here? Well, back to Moses again, but this time in the book of Deuteronomy, after the law was given by God and through Moses, he said this. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth, in your heart, so that you can do it. Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14. Moses was speaking of the law. And so what Paul is doing here is taking these words and reinterpreting them. He is applying it to the righteousness of Christ. Do you see that? Moses said, you don't have to perform some crazy mystical feat in order to discover these commands. The word of God, because it's right here, it's right in front of you. You don't have to search for it. Paul is saying, guys, now apply this to the righteousness of Christ. It's right in front of you. You don't have to ascend to heaven because Christ came down. 
You don't have to descend into the grave because Christ came up. And I want to stop here for a moment. I want to make a few clarifying statements about something. Oftentimes, I think we can view God through the lens of the old covenant and then through the lens of the new covenant. And we can kind of feel like we're looking at two different gods. We try and we reconcile a a God that seems to have required immaculate obedience to the law. And then one who Paul and the New Testament writers refer to as one who seems to be much more lax and not as concerned with obedience. Let me emphatically state, so there's actually two things I want you to take from this sermon. God has not changed. You change. I change. Our culture changes. Our society changes. Our churches change. The word that comes from the pulpit changes. The words to the songs that we sing change because we need more comfort and we need to be coddled and patted on the back. The word that the Bible preaches changes as it comes out of the mouth of a lot of preachers that are right up here on this Sunday morning preaching what they say is the word to a people who don't even know what the word of God says. Things change. The things around us change. Definitions of words change. We identify ourselves as whatever we want to because we're able to change even what the definition of words are. God doesn't change. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. God has not changed. And if we look at him from both sides, from the vantage point of the Old Testament and the vantage point of the New Testament, what we get is an immeasurable beauty. Because you see, God is still just as concerned with your holiness. We read in 1 Peter 1, this is New Testament, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct since it is written. And then he quotes from Leviticus 18, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, you are still to live a righteous and holy life. Because that accords with the character of God who is holy. And who has called believers to be holy because he is holy. And he will not stand for anything else. The thing is, Jesus Christ came and did it. He came and he lived it for He came and he lived it for you so that God... This sovereign judge, for those who have trusted in Jesus for their salvation, has already accepted payment for your inability to do it. But see, the thing is, the very framework of the old covenant, as we look at it and we see kind of two different gods, the framework of the old covenant of Leviticus and Deuteronomy and so on, it's still God's sovereign grace. Salvation and divine blessing have always begun with God's grace, which is made effective for the sinner when he comes to God in faith. You see, it's not at all that God was going about this hard and strict business of callously judging people when someone came along and proposed, hey, you should, you should extend a little more grace. 
No. First of all, in his law, God set the standards for holy living and was always concerned with heart obedience, not just external obedience. The law has always been, above all, a call to heartfelt, adoring faith in the God of mercy and loving kindness, who desires obedience and who graciously forgives sin. That's God. This is why when you go back into that same passage that we just looked at in Deuteronomy, uh, right up above that, it says, For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you, as he took delight in your fathers when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in the book of the law. When you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all of your soul, he delighted then and he delights now in blessing those who don't just follow the letter of the law, but who pursue him with their heart and soul. Furthermore, the plan of grace is one that was enacted before the foundation of the world. What Paul is doing here in Romans is not changing anything. He's simply unfolding more of the plan of grace and mercy that was set into place before the creation. Showing that Jesus' role in breathing life into Adam continued today to eventually breathe eternal life into you and I. Do you see that? The breath is the same. Same plan, the same grace, the same God. God does not change. And so the word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. And what is the word of faith? It is this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Not earning or doing or anything else. Believe and confess in both the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Believe and confess, and that is where salvation happens. But we need to be careful to understand that there is nothing magical or mystical about what we can accomplish with our actions and words either. See, we come right back to where we started. Salvation happens at the point one believes and confesses, but the power of salvation itself comes directly from the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that it is God who works in us to both will and to act according to his purpose, so we don't even have to do that. And terminology that is used over and over again is that of our being dead in sin prior to the work of the Holy Spirit. It is not your believing and confessing that saves you. It is Jesus. But believing and confessing is what happens upon our salvation. And to be saved means that you have the righteousness of God. When you have the righteousness of God, you are saved. Hear what I just said. When you are saved, you have, H-A-V-E, present tense, the righteousness of God. You are not at that point beginning to work toward it. You are not saved to begin the work of becoming righteous. Because once again, there isn't anything you can do to bring righteousness upon yourself. The righteousness of God is whom? Jesus. And so when you are saved, the righteousness of God becomes your righteousness. That, my friends, is good news. Some of you have heard my testimony. I have none on my own. I got nothing. 
If it was not for the righteousness of God on me, I've got nothing. And neither do you. And then we read in verse 11 that everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. In other words, they won't be disappointed. God will not turn that person away. Do you hear Paul's confidence there? That's our confidence too. It's stated emphatically here, will not be put to shame. Not so for those who put their trust in other things. And Paul continues into verse 12 talking about how it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Greek, indicating that God is not playing on performance, on ethnic background, on skin color, on socioeconomic status, on political affiliation. There is no favoritism based upon what Jesus has already accomplished. There's no favoritism based upon family of origin or based upon denomination or what kind of car you drive or whether or not you chew with your mouth open. Well, maybe that one. No, not that one either. No favoritism. The basis upon which his favor is poured out is that of faith. And if that is true, anyone can come. Anyone who trusts in Jesus for salvation can have it. Now, there's a tension here that I'm going to quickly address, and then I'm going to stop. The Bible clearly teaches that God chose before the foundation of the earth who would be conformed to the image of his son. In the chapter right before this one that we're looking at today, Paul says, When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done anything, had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. It is clear throughout the Bible that God was and is sovereign over salvation. And now this week we read in this passage, it says everyone. And so did God choose me, or did I choose him? This is a tough question, and I've got an answer for you. So get ready to write it down. All right? Did God choose me, or did I choose him? The answer is yes. Yes. Read the Bible from front to back and you will see that God's sovereignty is sure. We read in places like Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 1, 3 through 6, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he, uh uh-oh, predestined, us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Guys, if he did all of this before the foundation of the earth, how much did you have to do with it? And yet we have Romans 10, verses th- verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And yet we have John three sixteen. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him shall be saved. The fact is, the finite mind cannot comprehend the infinite. It just can't. And we don't like that. And we 
don't like not being in control. We must respond to God's call. If there is anyone in this room that is feeling the tug of the Holy Spirit, and trust me, that is not your mind, that is not your uh, uh, just feelings about things because I'm such a wonderful preacher, that's not it at all. If you're feeling that tug in your spirit right now, that's the Holy Ghost, my friend. Respond to him. There's a responsibility, even though in Ephesians 2, even faith to believe was a gift from God. But there's a response where we place our trust in Jesus. So is it one or the other? In Paul's words, how unsearchable, how unfathomable. What We trust God and respond in obedience because he said so. Amen? And at the end of the day, ladies and gentlemen, what sort of God would you expect? One that you can fit in your little mind? That's not a cut. Mine's smaller. I'll speak for myself. There's very little understanding in here. Very little. If I could fit the mysteries of God and understand all of him and how it all comes together, well, at that point, I have created a God that's infinitely smaller than the one who spoke all things into existence. One thing we do know for certain Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And another thing we know for certain, Jesus Christ has accomplished, has accomplished everything necessary for salvation and for righteousness for sanctification, and for eventual glorification with him. He's already done it. As pastors come forward, how do you need to respond to that this morning? I say it a lot. You're going to respond one way or the other. If you sit in your seat, you're responding. But there are some today, I know, that feel the Holy Spirit doing a work within them. Whether that is drawing you to a faith in Jesus Christ and a relationship with God as his adopted child because of what Christ has done, or whether that's change, heart change that needs to take place more in the sanctification toward holiness that God has called us to, there are some in here that are feeling that right now. And now is the time to respond to that. We have pastors and deacons up here that can pray with you, that can talk to you, but there's nothing magical we can do either. So even if you want to come up and take a knee and pray, stay in your seat and pray, it doesn't matter. Now is the time to respond to any of that. Also, if you're looking for a church home, Lawndale may have been a perfect place, but then I got here. So it's not any longer. We're just a people that are trying to glorify God. And we just want to honor him and to lift him up and to follow him with our lives. If that's a place that you want to be a part of, now is time for you to come down and to express your interest in candidacy for membership as well. Or whatever it is that the Lord is leading you to respond to, do that now. Don't wait.